And would you pray with me as we turn to God's word this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, for the next three weeks, I'm going to be walking us through the book of Philemon. Uh, Chuck here today said, it took me a while, but I did find Philemon in my Bible. Um, Philemon is the third shortest book in our Bible. It's only 335 words in the original Greek language, which only makes 25 verses for us as we read it here today. It's the shortest of Paul's letters. But don't let that fool you. We might spend a, a lot more time talking about Romans or First or Second Corinthians, but it doesn't mean that Philemon is any less significant or that it's any less theologically potent for us. In fact, I think that this little letter, more than maybe any other letter, provides us a clear and compelling view of what the Christian faith ought to look like in practice. This short letter is a really excellent way as well for us to pull together everything that we've been talking about this fall. I'm just looking out at this group. I know many of you have been tracking with us this fall. We had Baptism Sunday and Vision Sunday where I talked about assuming our primary identity in Christ in a world that is fighting to tell us who we are, to assume that primary source of identity coming from Jesus. And then Pastor Simon walked us through a series on worship and how, how our worship here both is a reflection of what God is doing in our hearts and also prepares us to do his work. Guess what? Philemon is about primary identity. It's also about uh, what lives of worship look like. And then Joy, for the last month, has been talking about stories of transformation, uh, particularly transformation, uh, stories of transformation with Jesus and others. And this is, if nothing else, Philemon is an incredible story of transformation, which we're going to get to. And then, as a church, we've been reading the book of Colossians in our Bible studies and small groups and men's and women's groups and, and in-home groups. And actually, Philemon and Colossians go together. They're companion letters. We're going to talk about more of that in the weeks to come. But I'm excited the way, for the way in which Philemon sort of pulls together everything that we've been talking about this fall. And as we journey, I think you're going to see the ways in which Philemon is implored to live out of his identity in Christ. And in doing so, how he's confronted with three things. And this is going to be the next three weeks. He's confronted with a new, uh, a new sort of model for family, a new model for what it means to be free, and a new model for accountability. So that's where we're headed in the next few weeks. But we're going to start by actually reading this. We don't often get to read an entire book of the Bible together. But would you stand as we read the book of Philemon? I'm going to encourage you uh, to, the words are not going to be up on the screen. I see some of you brought Bibles with you today. Fantastic. Some of you have already grabbed the pew Bibles in front of you. It's on page 970 in your pew Bible. This would be an awesome, awesome series to bring your own Bible, to, to keep the thumb in, in, at page 970 in your pew Bible. Uh, I made an appeal a couple weeks ago for, yes, we can find the Bible on our phone or on a screen, but uh, this is really the best way for us to encounter God's written word in, in a book without distractions, focused on God's word. So feel free to follow along if that helps you to listen. If it helps you to listen first to just close your eyes and listen, you can do that as well. But here, God's word for us this morning. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you 
and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and for your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to commend you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, that is, my own heart back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be a service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason that he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. One thing more, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So there are three main characters in this short letter, this short book, this amazing story. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus. Those are the characters. There are more, but these are the main ones. Paul is the author, Philemon is the recipient, and Onesimus is the subject of the letter. Here is what we know about these three characters. Uh, this is Paul's only personal letter, meaning that instead of writing to a large group of people, a church full of people, this was written to one person, to Philemon. Only one in scripture from Paul to, a, to one person. Paul is in prison, likely under house arrest in the city of Rome, as he sends this letter to the churches in Laodicea and Colossae. This is what we call the letter to the Colossians. And he pens this short letter to Philemon, and he tucks it in with the letter to the Colossians. So that can be delivered to Philemon. Philemon, he's a, he's a wealthy believer in the city of Colossae or Laodicea, one of those two cities. And he hosted uh, the church in his home. He's a man of good reputation. He was likely led to faith by Paul himself on one of his missionary journeys in that area. So the sender and the recipient, they have a close relationship. They have an abiding relationship. They have history together. And Philemon is a slave owner as many wealthy first century people were. One of his slaves is our third character, and that's a man named Onesimus. The conflict in this letter is that Onesimus is a slave that has run away from his master Philemon. We do not know for sure why Onesimus ran away 
from Philemon. Uh, we do have accounts in the first century of, of slaves that ran away, mostly because of abusive or harsh behavior from their masters. But based on how Paul commends Philemon for his love and his tenderness for all people, that doesn't seem to be the case here. Much more probable is the theory that a lot of people have floated around that Onesimus was a lazy and ungrateful servant who saw a chance to make off with some of his master's money or possessions, leaving Philemon hurt and also financially disadvantaged. We don't know exactly how Onesimus slipped away, but almost certainly he went to Ephesus, which is a port city, took a, took a boat to the one place where a runaway slave would be expected to go, and that is Rome. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote of the city of Rome, all things disgraced and horrible find their way here to hide. Onesimus likely saw Rome as a place where he could go and blend in, where he could go underground, and where he would never be caught for his crimes. Now let me pause here for a second in this story. I know that when we say the word slavery, certain associations come up with us. Know that slavery in the way we're talking about it in the first century is quite different than our American history um, and our collective memory here as Americans. It's not the horror of racially motivated chattel slavery, but instead... Most slaves in the Roman world were spoils of war, or they were people who voluntarily sold themselves into slavery because they didn't want to slip into a cycle of poverty. They, they found this to be advantageous for them to serve in this way. They were often very well-educated bond servants who were treated well, who were valued by their masters. Uh, slaves in the first century could do things like they could marry, they could accumulate wealth, they could run their own business. They could eventually purchase their own freedom. And at the time of Jesus, as, as much as two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. So this was not a, necessarily a designation of derision. This was just sort of baked into the economy and, and the ethos of Roman life. That said, our friend Onesimus in this story, he's in a bunch of trouble as he arrives in Rome. Because he's guilty of two capital crimes running away from his master and stealing from his master. And the empire was very, very careful to make an example out of runaway slaves, out of slaves who had stolen because their economy was so centered around this system. So they took the charges really seriously. Rebellious slaves could be killed on the spot or at very least branded on their forehead with an F for fugitive or a CF which is cave forum, which means beware of this thief. So Onesimus could have been branded with both of those on his forehead, and that's if his master Philemon was in a good mood that day to make that decision. Actually, at the, almost the very same time that this letter is written, there's a, a, a notorious high-profile court case that's happening in Rome where uh, a wealthy Roman man named uh, Pettianus uh, Secundus had 400 slaves, and one of those slaves rose up and murdered him. And in order... To make an example out of it, they had a, a successful prosecution that, that uh, executed all 400 of those slaves publicly. Just to make a point, slaves don't act this way. This is serious crime. All this to say Onesimus is in trouble. We even have stories of professional, uh, a cottage industry of professional uh, slave hunters who would mix in with the runaway slaves in Rome and try and bring them to justice. We don't know how Onesimus happened upon the Apostle Paul. Maybe he was well aware of the connection that Paul and Philemon, his former master, had and felt like he was a safe person to go to. Maybe it was just a Holy Spirit connection. But either way, 
Onesimus comes into contact with Paul, who's currently under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting trial. And guess what? Paul does what Paul always does, right? He converts Onesimus to faith in Jesus Christ. It becomes Onesimus' primary identity. He becomes a, a beloved, devoted apostle um, uh, and, and disciple of Paul, helping him in his imprisonment, serving him. And as Onesimus grows in his faith, so does his conviction that he needs to make amends with his former master, Philemon. And a perfect opportunity presents itself because another of Paul's apostles, his name is Tychicus, he was departing to Asia Minor, to the city of Ephesus and to Colossae and to Laodicea to bring this letter of Colossians to them. And so Paul tucks in this brief little letter to Philemon and says, hey Onesimus, I want you to deliver this yourself. So that's the context of the relationships behind this letter. Now imagine, if you will, Onesimus' emotions in his long journey back to Ephesus and then to Colossae, to his old master who knows that he's a lying thief, whose, whose life he holds in his hand. I can only imagine the kind of fear that, he, that would have been going through his heart and his mind at that moment. Imagine him arriving in the city of Laodicea or Colossae, wherever it was, perhaps in Philemon's own home, and having this, this letter read aloud for everybody to hear, including Philemon, who's standing in the room with him. But this is where I, and I invite you to do this with me, just marvel at the brilliance of the Apostle Paul. I mean, this is one of the absolute best things that's ever been written in the first century. It's a masterpiece of writing. I think it's the most compelling story of reconciliation I've ever read. Why? Because Paul does something. He appeals to something that he and Onesimus and Philemon all have in common now, which is what? Their identity in Christ. That's his appeal. He takes the existing relationships that the Roman world sets for them, which would create this hierarchy of indebtedness, and instead what he does is he flattens it. And he says that in Christ, we have a new vision of what family is. And that's really the main point of this sermon today as we get started in Philemon. When we take our primary identity from Jesus, it changes our relationships from hierarchies to families. It upsets the moral order. There's actually a fascinating parallel uh, with the letter of Philemon. At about the same time, we have another letter uh, from Roman antiquity. It's from a guy named Pliny the Younger. He was also a believer. And he's writing to a friend named Sabinianus. And, and very much like Philemon, Sabinianus had a slave who had run away and come to Pliny for help. And Pliny is writing back to him, encouraging him to take him back, just like Paul did with Onesimus. Now, Pliny was a powerful man. He was a Roman senator. And, and, and like Paul, he wants Sabinianus to take back this runaway slave. But unlike Paul, Pliny appeals to self-interest, and he sides with Sabinianus, the master, against the slave. Here's what he says. This is just fascinating to me. He says, yes, I know you are angry. I know, too, that you have the right to be angry. But mercy earns most praise when anger is fully justified. Anger is always torture for a soft heart like yours. And then he says of this runaway slave, who doesn't have a name, by the way, in this letter. He says, I've given him a sharp and severe talking to. I've warned him clearly that I won't make such a request again. This is written at the same time as Paul's letter to Philemon. It's not a request for full reconciliation. It's not even a request necessarily for peace between these two, but rather for the master's mercy. Essentially, he's saying, he's a young guy. He did something wrong, but you're a good guy, right? Pliny wants this slave to go back to Sabinianus. 
to apologize, and he wants for Sabinianus to not beat him too badly for running away. He's perfectly happy to keep that hierarchy in place upon his return. But compare that to what we just heard from the Apostle Paul. Paul's motivations and his appeal are entirely different. Paul's not simply asking for Philemon to take Onesimus back and let bygones be bygones and don't hurt him too badly. He's making an appeal for a totally different understanding of relationships based on their common transformation through Jesus Christ. And we see this most clearly in the sublimely beautiful verse 16 where Paul encourages Philemon to take Onesimus back. He says, take him back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother. What's the difference between Pliny the Younger's letter and Paul's letter, both dealing with basically the same issue? The difference is that Paul is not appealing to Roman identity or what is economically prudent for, like Pliny is or, or even the letter of the Roman law. He's appealing to identity in Jesus Christ. Allow me to illustrate this. Uh, this is a guy named Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen was a notorious gangster in the 1950s, uh, mostly in Los Angeles. Uh, really interesting guy, not a good guy, as you might imagine. Not a, not a great guy. Um, but on one occasion, he attended a, a, an evangelistic sort of tent meeting, outdoor tent meeting, and showed some interest in the Christian faith. And as you can imagine, the leaders of this gathering were like, wow, a gangster just came. What if... What if we can capture him with the love of Jesus? Like, wouldn't that make a great story of, of transformation? And think of the kind of influence he could have maybe in his circles if he comes to know Jesus and the effect that he could have on other people. So they kept working with him, and eventually Mickey Cohen accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior at a, at a revival meeting. Amazing. And the leaders were just thrilled. But then the months began to sort of pass, and he was coming less and less. And they realized that there was really no substantive in this gangster's life. He was still getting in trouble. He was still hanging out with the same people. No real substantive change could be seen. And when they lovingly confronted Mickey about this, he responded, well, no one had told him that he would have to give up his work or his friends. After all, there were Christian football players and Christian cowboys and Christian movie stars and Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? But how often do we live this way? We have to ask ourselves, what identity am I living out of? Is it the identity that is fed to me by my television and my social media feed and my friends and my accomplishments? or my own inner compass? Or is it Jesus who tells me who I am? Friends, this letter is so timely for us because we have a world that's desperately watching to see if people who claim Jesus Christ are actually going to live like him. One of the best witnesses to Jesus, the very best witness, more than any other words that you could ever say, are people who exhibit a life that is transformed by Jesus. And one of the most impotent, fleeting, powerless witnesses to Jesus is lives that look exactly the same as if they had never met him. Friends, I'm so utterly convinced that the biggest lie in our Western society today 
is that life is going to be prosperous and good and fulfilling if we can just find and curate and live out of our true selves. That we can go through, you know, that, that through hard work and, and discipline and a balanced life and the right diet and the right exercise and the right political affiliation and the right financial stability, that we're going to find our true selves and we're going to live out of those true selves. Honestly, how is that going for us as a society, people? How is that going for us? Anxiety and depression are at code red levels. People are hopelessly confused about who they are and what matters in life. Our our creation of self-world is woefully ill-equipped to navigate the barrage of media that are selling you identities that they know will never satisfy you. Our self-made identities have absolutely failed. And as long as we believe that lie, we're going to value any other identity other than identity in Jesus Christ. We will fight and we will claw and strive to maintain our comforts and our vocation and our image and our power and our sexuality and our influence, believing that that is really who we are. But none of those sources of identity are going to lead to life. They're actually going to imprison you. More on that next week. Come on back for that. But when our identity is rooted in Jesus first, it transforms us. It transforms our relationships. Mickey Cohen is an example of someone who came to understand Jesus somehow, intellectually, right, but never got anywhere close to allowing Jesus to be his primary identity source. He valued his identity and his relationships as a gangster far more than anything else. But Paul, in this letter, what a great example of someone who experienced his own transformation on the road to Damascus and made Jesus his heart's desire and the primary source from where his identity came. And guess who else? So did Philemon when he came to faith under Paul's leadership. So did Onesimus when he came to faith under Paul's leadership in Paul's time of need. These are three men who are fervently following Jesus and have experienced transformation. And Paul is saying, hey, we share this. We share this primary identity. And and the fact that we share that, it has to change our relationships fundamentally. And we see that in the text. Paul viewing the transformation in the runaway slave Onesimus calls, um, calls him his son, his child in verse 10, saying that I've become his father. And then in verse 11, Paul does something really interesting. He says, formerly Onesimus was useless to you, Philemon, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. This is a master stroke of writing by Paul, by the way, because you see the name Onesimus in Greek means useful or profitable. A great name for a slave, right? Useful, profitable. So what is Paul saying? It's a play on words. He's saying to Philemon, he used to be useless to you. Yes, he might have been profitable in terms of Roman, uh, uh, Roman standard of what's profitable and useful, but he was useless to you relationally. He was nothing to you. But now he's profitable. He's useful to both of us. How? As a brother in Christ. So what's the outcome? What's the outcome of Paul's letter? We understand his, his vision for reconciliation between these two. Did it really happen? Well, we can unequivocally say, yes, it did happen for two reasons. First of all, there's absolutely no way that we would have this letter uh, and be reading it today if they weren't reconciled. They would have buried this story, right? The early church would have said that. Well, that was a failed attempt. But the letter was copied numerous times and circulated to other churches as a story of encouragement as a great story of reconciliation. The the fact that we're reading it today is evidence that Philemon responded just as Paul wanted him to. I can just 
see in my mind Onesimus delivering this letter, standing in the room as it was read. Philemon's over here, Onesimus is over here. And I have to believe that after this letter was, was read, what happened? There had to be embrace, right? There had to be embrace and tears and, and Onesimus adding his own personal words of, I'm sorry, I've done you wrong and, and here's my guilt. And Philemon embracing him and saying, For, you're my brother, you're reconciled, you're my brother. And I think the church was also gathered around when this was read and they saw this happen. I mean, imagine if that happened in our midst, how exciting would that be, Right? So this church is like, we got to copy this story. we got to get this out to as many churches as possible and tell them this amazing story of reconciliation. The second reason that we can have confidence that Philemon responded to Paul in the way that he wanted to was what we can clean from Onesimus' life going forward. Many believe that Onesimus was indeed freed of all his debts and returned to Paul in Rome, caring for him maybe even during his last breaths as he, as he died under house arrest in Rome. But 50 years after the writing of the letter of Philemon, uh, a man named Ignatius, one of our great church, early church fathers, wrote to a number of churches in Asia Minor. And when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he praised their bishop, whose name was Onesimus, even making the same pun that Paul did about his name. So there is evidence, good evidence, that the once runaway slave in the bowels of Rome had become the bishop of a major city of Ephesus. Now, if that's true, and I do believe that it is true, it's, that's the, one of the greatest stories of the gospel that our church has ever had. An amazing story, one that needs to be told over and over again. There's so much more to dig into this letter, so I, I do invite you to come back over the next two weeks as we study sort of the nuances of Philemon more fully. But for today, I want to go back to verse 15. Think about Paul's life a murderous, zealous persecutor of the church who's turned into an apostle and great missionary for Jesus. Think about Philemon's life, a wealthy slave owner who who gets captured by the gospel of Jesus and becomes a church planter in his own home. Think of Onesimus' life, a runaway slave that's turned into a brother and then a bishop. Think about those stories of transformation as I read this. Paul says, Philemon, perhaps this is the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, as in eternity. It was a crime and a plan to run away that brought Onesimus to faith and to brotherhood with Paul and with Philemon. And it's the story, I believe, of Onesimus' transformation that changes Paul and Philemon's view of who is useful and who's not in the family of the kingdom of God an eternal family forever. Onesimus, just think about how God works. Onesimus flees the length of the known world to escape his master and lose himself in Rome only to meet the one man in the world for whom his master was spiritually indebted, owed his very life to. And then he found spiritual life himself. How good is our God? How good is our God? What an amazing story. But here's what strikes me today. These three men experience this beautiful story that has blessed God's people ever since because they intentionally chose to assume Christ as their primary identity. But if any one of them had gone the way of Mickey Cohen and hung on to old titles and useless identities, this story never comes to fruition. We don't know it today. For these men, there's no such thing as a Christian zealot persecutor. 
There's no such thing as a Christian wealthy slave owner. There's no such thing as a Christian runaway slave. They're just fervent followers of Jesus. And here's what I want to say to the church today. If we commit right here, right now, as the people of God to say, I categorically reject identity formation from any other source than Jesus, and we actually live into that, guess what? God's going to write stories of reconciliation and beauty and goodness and love and spiritual profitability in our midst. He's ready to do it. And he's going to do it in our families and our communities and in our church and in our world. You see, Philemon and Onesimus is not just like this, this nice one-time story. It is, it is paradigmatic. It's, it's emblematic of how God wants to work his transformation in and through us and through his church. So, let's commit ourselves to Jesus. Let's cast aside these identities that I think we all agree are not really working very well for us in our society today. Let's appeal to the common identity that we have as followers of Jesus and let's just see what kind of story God is going to write in our midst, right here, right now. May we, as God's children, find each other profitable for eternity. May it be so. Amen. Before we head to the table this morning, we're going to take just a few